Hey, homegirls and homeboys, I'm Arielle. And I'm Amanda, and we're the Homicide Homegirls. Just two best friends discussing true crime cases that they can't stop obsessing over. If you're like us and your guilty pleasure is serial killer documentaries, whodunit mysteries, and procedural police shows, then you're in the right place. So buckle up, Buttercup, grab an adult beverage, and get ready, because on Wednesdays, we talk murder. Hey guys, welcome back. Uh, am I glad to be covering an episode not about Jim Jones? Because fuck him. No pun intended, but hallelujah. Oh my God. Yeah, he is one uh, sick motherfucker. But real quick, I wanted to say something that I forgot to tell y'all at the end of part four um, two weeks ago. So obviously the Jonestown Massacre was very... Um, sad and everything but what made it even worse is that leo ryan's report was not even going to report anything bad oh the guy who got the the congressman that got killed his report was going to say that there's no abuse going on like because he he didn't see anything and then the people that wanted to leave were able to leave with him so his report was going to and they were going to leave him alone wow yeah and they fucking ambushed him exactly granted there was abuse going on, but I mean, you can only do so it's much. Hearsay. That's hearsay. That's hearsay. Okay, Johnny Depp. Also, if y'all hear people screaming or music, I'm sorry. There's people in Amanda's pool. It's, it's fine. It's not my individual pool. Right. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> I was about to, I, you know, and I thought that when I said it. Amanda's complex, apartment complex. Yeah, it's right out my pool. front door. Yeah. If it was your pool, we'd kick them out. <laughs> For sure. Anyway. But so I just wanted to say that because I thought about it like literally the day after we finished recording and I was like, fuck, I forgot to say that. But anyway, um, I'm also excited to be covering a case that I can do in one episode instead of having to like eat, sleep and breathe like another multiple part case. Um, Although I think I'm doing a serial killer next, so that may end up being multiple parts. What can I say? I'm a mess. Tell me you're toxic without telling me you're toxic. Man, fuck you. (laughs) Anyways... As I'm sure you've already noticed, we have a new category today, fraud. So if you've been a listener for any amount of time, you likely know I'm a CPA. I feel like we talk about it a lot, um, which is a certified public accountant, and I'm an auditor. Um, originally, when I pitched the idea of a fraud category to Amanda, I wanted to cover like financial-type fraud, like Bernie Madoff, Ponzi schemes, and the like. But Amanda made a really good point that not many people other than me with my nerdy self would be interested in a whole ass episode about financial crime because let's be honest it can be boring and tedious and yeah so and that's fair that's fair (laughs) I I'm interested in it because it relates to what I do but not everybody is going to for sure yeah so I pivoted and decided that the fraud category would include a financial crime that resulted in murder. So we compromised. I like it. I like it a lot. Look at us. Uh, look, look at us. us. Also, I have it in um in researching this episode, I've probably found my second case that's going to be 
Under uh, the fraud category? Yeah. I'm not even going to mention it because I don't want to, like, spoil anything. But um, it kind of just came up because it's kind of related. Um, so not only are we adding a new category today, we're adding a new state as well. Um, this case hits close to home for me because, as I just said, I'm an auditor. So it's scary to think that this type of thing could happen to me. Um, maybe not currently because I'm an internal auditor. So I'm like not going to like a client's office anymore. Like I audit my own agency's activities and financials and then suggest ways to improve. So there's not much incentive to murder me if I found fraud, but you never know. I mean, right. yeah. Or so is like, the secretary of state gonna, huh? It's the secretary of state gonna, or no, the treasurer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think like. Plus, they actually, it's nice being at a place where they value my opinion. Everything that I've suggested that they do, they listen. I bet the fuck they do. <laughs> like, when Bitch, I... Bitch, don't you know elections is coming up? Right. And, like, when I... Yeah, my boss is running for governor. Mm-hmm. So. And, like, when I interviewed, I had to interview with him mm-hmm. personally. And he doesn't always do that. But he basically was like, yeah, you're the person that's going to keep me out of trouble and keep me out of the papers. So. Duh, you fucking right. Right. Um, But anyway, so... Today, we're going to cover the sad case of the 2008 murder of Sally Rohrbach, an insurance auditor in North Carolina. So, you're going to say something? Side note, yeah. I am kind of a a slut for the Real Housewives. So, like, I'm catching up. Like, I'm all caught up on Atlanta, Orange County, and Beverly Hills, but I'm in the middle of, like, New Jersey, Mm -hmm. which Teresa Judice. Oh, didn't her husband go to jail they for fraud? They both went to jail. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For bankruptcy fraud, yeah. wire fraud, all mm-hmm. kind of shit. So that, the season that I'm on is her, like, she just got back from jail. Oh, okay. She That's spoke, she was convicted of, like, 15 months. I mean, sentenced to 15 months. What did her, her husband got way more, didn't he? 41. And he got deported. He's still deported. And she to only where? had to serve Italy. Oh, is that where he's from? Okay, gotcha. Yeah, he came here and was, like, one. That's fucked up. <laughs> Which I don't entirely understand that because he was married. So like, yeah. wouldn't that be like a... Like a green card marriage? Yeah. Not, not that it was a green card marriage, but yeah. No. Well, no, know. are they divorced now? Now they... She just got remarried. Well, yeah. If they're divorced, then that, that doesn't protect him anymore. Well, I know. But like, he's been fighting to get... Oh, Like, gotcha. back in for a while. Interesting. What's well, funny how like it, it's related to what we're covering. Yeah. So right she... um, Yeah. Interesting. Um, so, when Sally made a trip to Charlotte, North Carolina in May 2008 to perform a routine investigation no different than the thousands she had done before, she had no idea that this investigation would be her last. Um, so, let's get going, shall we? <laughs> Sally Robach was a 44-year-old woman and was employed as an investigator with the North Carolina Insurance Department in 2008. Sally attended uh, University of North Carolina Wilmington, where she met her husband of 24 years. The couple did not have any children, but Tim told the Associated Press that his wife took took in, like, three stray dogs and four cats. So, like, she was super caring and loving. Sound like me. Yeah. No kids, um, all animals. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Tim spoke really fondly of her, according to a May 2008 article in the Winston-Salem Journal, when he said, quote, I'm not much of a people person, but she was. She was a joy to be around, end quote. So, I watched an episode of uh, a show. It's on, I think, ID. It came on ID called Homicide City, Charlotte, because it happened in Charlotte, North Carolina. And it was season one, episode six, called ed- Editing. Auditing Evil, which I thought was clever. Mm-hmm. So, on May 16, 2008, 
state insurance investigator Timothy Pardue received a call from his office that his coworker Sally Rohrbach hadn't checked in with them while working on an investigation in Charlotte, North Carolina, and they couldn't reach her for a couple of days. Um, and he was like the closest to Charlotte. Mm-hmm. So they um, so Sally had been a state insurance investigator for 10 years and she was very well liked within her office and she was always punctual. I can't talk. She was always punctual and communicative when on assignment. So not being able to get in touch with her was like a giant red flag Mm -hmm. for her company. So at the time, Tim was the closest to Charlotte. So they were like, hey, can you follow up and like see if you can, you know, locate her? So Tim started by contacting the coworkers he knew Sally worked with most frequently. He contacted Kathy O'Connor and she said that she also hadn't heard from Sally. And Sally wasn't answering phone calls or emails, and she wasn't following her usual routine of checking in with her coworkers. And I think she even missed, like, a business meeting with her supervisor the next day mm-hmm. or, like, a couple days before. And she didn't meet up with friends in Charlotte that she was for dinner that she had planned to. So they were like, yeah, something's not right. So um, Tim decided to start driving around Charlotte to look for any signs of Sally. But by that evening, he decided he would attempt to retrace her steps, driving the path she would have taken from the insurance agency she was auditing to her hotel and back. Unfortunately, Tim was not able to locate a single trace of Sally. All Tim could confirm is that Sally had checked into her hotel on May 14th, 2008, worked in Charlotte for two days, and then she just disappeared. So according to Sally's husband, Tim... She was filling in for another insurance investigator on that assignment. So in that Charlotte, wouldn't have been her North normal Carolina. assignment. Right. And we talk about this all the time. Like near misses or like wrong place, wrong time. She wasn't even supposed to be. That wasn't even her case mm-hmm. originally. And which is so sad. It makes it even sadder, right. you know. Not that any, I wanted like, not that it would have mattered who died. But like, you know, it's just like she wasn't, it wasn't even her case. Right. She shouldn't have been the target. Right. So, Tim said he had last heard from his wife on Tuesday, May 13th, 2008, via an email. Oh, wait. I said she checked into her hotel May 14th. I lie. I think she checked in on May 12th. My bad. So, she worked for four days? No. She checked in on May 12th, worked for two days. I think the 13th and 14th and the 14th was the last time anybody had seen her sorry that got that confused so she didn't she checked into her hotel on monday so monday the 16th is when they got the the notification they hadn't heard from her right the okay. 16th is like they, that it had been like two days the last they had heard from her was on the 14th and they were like this is really weird like I got she, you. so sorry i just got that confused <laughs> um so tim said he had last heard from his wife on tuesday may 13th 2008 via an email He told the Winston-Salem Journal that during their communication, Sally didn't suggest that anything was awry. Tim told the Winston-Salem Journal, quote, We do a lot of landscaping and we have stuff going on all the time. Typically, when we email back and forth, that's usually what it's all about. Tuesday's email had more to do with resurfacing our driveway, and I was updating her on what I was going to do next, end quote. Tim didn't hear from his wife over the following days, but he wasn't too worried. He knew she was busy with the audit, and he knew she had plans to catch up with some friends while she was in Charlotte, so he didn't think much of it. And I think I say this later, but I'm going to say it now. Um, apparently, they didn't talk very much, like, when she was on assignment. 
they they just wasn't they're just one of those couples that like doesn't constantly talk you know especially when she's away on work so tim expected sally to be home on friday may 16th 2008 so he left work early to be home to meet her Sadly, Tim didn't see Sally when he got home. Instead, he received a phone call from her office. Tim told the Winston-Salem Journal, quote, They asked if I had seen her or spoken with her. They told me the news. They said they usually communicated with her daily and had not heard from her, and they had already been worried for a couple of days. At that point, I knew something was very, very wrong, end quote. Tim desperately started calling friends and asking if anyone had heard from his wife. He then phoned the police. And after a sleepless night, Tim drove into Charlotte on Saturday, May 17, 2008, to meet with the police. Police began a ground search and interviewed Michael Howell, owner of the Dilworth Insurance Agency, which is who she was auditing. And he told police he had last seen her on Wednesday, May 14th. So by Saturday morning, May 17, 2008, Sally is reported missing to the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department and the agency began searching for her as well. According to the sheriff of the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department, most missing person cases only include the victim's name and the location where they were last seen or last known to be. However, in Sally Rohrbach's case, the police were fortunate because Sally had a pattern, a schedule that she wouldn't deviate from, and because she was in Charlotte for work, you know, you would expect her to have like a planner or an appointment book or even like a notebook where she documented everything she had planned to do, you know, and things that she actually did do. So in this case, you know, they had a little bit more to go on than just other missing persons cases where they just like up and disappeared. Mm -hmm. Cause I know for me as an auditor, like I have my planner and my notebook and you know, yeah, they didn't have a description. Huh? They don't, you know, last seen wearing. Yeah. So, like, I mean, having a schedule and a planner is, like, super important as an auditor. Like, especially when you're out of the office, like, on an assignment. So, like I said, you know, when you're on an audit, it's important to take notes and document things that you find. Um, So, the police kind of had a lot of information to sift through. So, then detectives went and interviewed Sally's husband, Um, Tim Rohrbach, and they were immediately suspicious of him for a few reasons. Um, One, Tim was not the one who reported his wife missing, which they thought was strange. But then again, she's on assignment. Yeah. Two, Tim didn't seem very concerned about the fact that his wife was missing. Three, Tim told police that he often didn't speak to Sally when she was away on business because he didn't have a cell phone. Which is strange. I mean, in 2008, who doesn't have a cell phone? But again, there could be a reasonable explanation for all of that, you know. But he told police he would communicate with his wife via emails when she was gone. However, he had not heard from her since Tuesday. He emailed her again on Thursday, but she never responded. And detectives felt like Tim, like there was no sense of urgency for him to find his wife. You know, Mm -hmm. he was kind of just like whatever about it. Which they thought was weird. Yeah. You know? Um, And they wondered, like, is there something he's not telling us? Um, But, you know, coming off as an uncaring husband is not a crime. So detectives were like, they just told Tim, you know, give us a call if you hear from Sally or if you think of anything 
that may help us. So they left him, you know, for the time being. But they were like, we're just going to, like, keep an eye on him, too, you know. So in the meantime, detectives started pulling Sally's phone and banking records, hoping they could track her movements that way. Unfortunately, this did not assist detectives at all. Sally had no contact with anyone and was not using her credit cards. It's as if she had just vanished into thin air. There was not a shred of a digital footprint left by her. And since she had no reason to, like, go off the grid or disappear on her own, they knew they had to hurry. And the sheriff, actually, on the documentary I watched, or the the episode I watched, he was like, you know, this is 2008. We all, you have your iPhone. You're going to be on your phone. You're going to go get Starbucks. You're Mm going to go buy food. You're going to use your credit cards. And he was like, we had none of that. Yeah. So it was, like, not a good, Right. And in 2008, they didn't have all order by Starbucks app and all that. So, like, I mean, there was still a greater deal (laughs) to to sift through um, digitally. Mm -hmm. But she had nothing. But not compared to today. Right. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, but there was no purchases. Yeah. So they were like, you know, something's not right. And they were like, she had no reason that they knew of to, like, take cash and try to, like, go off the grid. Yeah. So... Detectives were alerted that Sally's last known location was at the Dilworth Insurance Agency. She was assigned to audit the insurance firm and had been working with the owner, Michael Howell, prior to her disappearance. According to Sally's co-worker, Timothy Pardue, she was performing a routine audit of Dilworth Insurance Agency just to ensure that the business was operating correctly. Michael Howell was a member of the local community, and he was a family man with a wife and children. And a lot of people were like, you know, he's such a nice guy. You know, we never would have thought. Spoiler alert, he did it. But, <laughs> I mean, you knew that because of right. the title. But, like, you're not going to, you don't always know what people are like behind closed doors, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, his business, the Dilworth Insurance Agency, had been in the community for a really long time and actually was first established by his father. So, people in the community loved and trusted him. When detectives first paid a visit to Michael Howell and questioned him about Sally, he told them that she was at the office a day prior for about two hours, but he didn't notice anything unusual or off about her. He told detectives that Sally left the office with a box of receipts that she was going to take somewhere to copy because Michael's copier was out of toner. And he explained that he fully expected Sally to return the next morning and was shocked when she didn't. So I think the last day she was there was the 14th, which I think was a was the Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, but based on this conversation, detectives didn't really feel like there was anything out of the ordinary at the Dilworth Insurance Agency. So they decided to head to her hotel room to investigate and attempt to find any clues. But when they walk into her hotel room, it's immediately clear that something is not right. All of Sally's belongings are still in the hotel room. If she had left of her own volition, it's a reasonable assumption that she would have packed up all of her things. Instead, it appeared as if she had just left things unpacked with the intent to return. Like, and there's picture, they show pictures on the episode, like, her suitcase is open. There's stuff, like, it wasn't like a mess, but you can tell... You were hotel living. Yeah, she was planning to come back. Detectives did notice that Sally's work computer and her state-issued vehicle were missing from the hotel. So she had a state car that she had driven. Wow. 
there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So detectives started canvassing the neighborhood surrounding the hotel, attempting to locate any leads. One woman detective spoke to told them that on Friday evening, May 16th, she saw a silver vehicle in the street and heard a woman scream, and then the vehicle sped off. So detectives put out an APB on Sally's silver state-issued Chevy Malibu, and they caught a break on Sunday, May 18th. So she has a silver car, and this lady said she saw a silver car, and somebody screamed, and the vehicle sped off because Mm -hmm. she looked outside because she heard the scream. Was this near the hotel? Yes. Okay. So Sally's state-owned 2007 Chevrolet Malibu was located shortly before 8 a.m. on Sunday, May 18, 2008, in the parking lot of a Bojangles restaurant about 10 miles from her hotel. This is the day after I graduated. Oh, no shit. High school, yeah. Um, so at this point, Sally had been missing for about four days, but had only been reported missing for two days. Mm-hmm. The car appeared to be abandoned, and there was no sign of Sally Rohrbach. According to detectives on the Homicide City Charlotte episode I watched, the area where Sally's car was located was not a very safe area, and they didn't think that Sally would have been in in that area on her own. Like, she had no reason to be there. Mm -hmm. And actually, the sheriff said, if you find a car there, it was a miracle that there were still tires on it. Because it was just, like, that kind of area. Mm -hmm. So, um... When detectives arrived on scene, they quickly noticed that the doors were unlocked, the keys were still in the car, and there was money visible in the car. Like, the console was open, and you could just see cash in there. Wow. There were no signs of a struggle in or around the vehicle. Detectives feared that Sally's body could be in the trunk, so they kind of slowly opened the trunk, but there was no body. And... Detectives surmised that if someone had kidnapped Sally and harmed her, they dumped the car in that shady area of town, left it unlocked with the keys in it and money visible in hopes that someone would steal it. Right. So, a police search of Sally's car didn't turn up many useful clues. All they found in the vehicle were the typical items you would expect her to have, like file folders, files for work, you know, clothes, work documentation. So, nothing like out of the ordinary. But the one promising clue detectives did find was a handwritten note tucked under the passenger side visor. Um, the letter it was not signed, but the content of the letter made it appear that it was from Sally's husband. And this letter did not paint Sally's husband in a positive light, which was not great for Tim because detectives already thought he was suspicious as fuck. <laughs> no DNA? Like man's no. DNA? The contents of the letter led officers to believe that Sally may have been contemplating leaving her husband and asking for a divorce. The letter went on to talk about issues in the marriage and ended with Sally's husband asking her to stay. So ding, ding, ding. Bad look. Sally's husband, Timothy Rohrbach, became suspect number one, so the police made it their priority to go interview him again. Obviously, having a troubled marriage does not make you a murderer, but it could give someone motive to commit a murder. But we already know the significant other or spouse is almost always the first suspect in cases like this. But this note, combined with the husband's behavior, just made investigators even more suspicious. So they returned to Tim and asked, you know, why he hadn't mentioned the letter when they first interviewed him. They pressed him to explain how they got to this point. Why didn't you tell us you had a troubled marriage? You know, like, 
Because he acted like everything was fine. Mm -hmm. Most men do. Yeah. Anyways. But of course, I mean, that is, that's embarrassing too. Like to just, you know, come on and say, I feel like we see this a lot. People deny having marital problems because it does make you look suspicious, you know? Mm -hmm. So Tim came clean to detectives that he was dealing with his own personal issues at the time, but he was working through them and he was hoping that Sally would stay while he took the time he needed to like get his own problems sorted out. Mm-hmm. But he stood his ground that despite having problems in their marriage, he would never do anything to harm his wife. He gave detectives his whereabouts on the days surrounding his wife's disappearance and his alibi ultimately checked out. Detectives on the Homicide City Charlotte episode um, explained that Tim's alibi was airtight. So he was he was cleared of any involvement. And at this point, it was back to square one for detectives. So they started, you know, looking for new leads. The first place they started was with a more in-depth forensic search of Sally's car. They performed a trace test on her car and the contents, which just means like they donned full protective gear Mm -hmm. to make sure that they're not touching like the text. Contaminating the crime scene. Which is how you should do everything. Correct. Um, Come correct or don't come at all. Um, but unfortunately, no fingerprints, blood, DNA, etc. were located. Sadly, the car that detectives hoped would be the key piece of evidence and lead them to Sally's whereabouts was a complete dead end. So that Bojangles restaurant that her car was found at was only seven blocks away from the Dilworth insurance agency where she was last seen. So, following the discovery of her car, police began a search of, like, a four- to six-block area surrounding the restaurant. They searched dumpsters, trash cans, and, like, any other areas near where the car was found in hopes of maybe finding items that may have been discarded, like, Sally's belongings that have been discarded. But, much like with everything else in this case, detectives didn't find anything. Yet again, they're back to where they started with no clues, no leads, and no idea where Sally was or if she was even alive. Because they had found nothing so far, detectives started to focus on why Sally was in Charlotte in the first place, which we know was the audit of the Dilworth Insurance Agency. So detectives began going through Sally's notes from the audit with a fine-tooth comb, looking for anything that may be strange or possibly give them a lead. This strategy pays off and investigators find exactly what they were looking for, a lead. According to Chet Effler, who was like the director of the Department of Insurance, he was on the episode that I watched. He said Sally would, you know, typically go into a business involved in the insurance industry, look at their books and files and make sure they were conducting their business properly and following all the laws and regs that they're required to. In this particular case, Dilworth Insurance Agency was migrating from like a ledger style system. So like analog, like by hand. Like checks. Yeah. Like or to, like, an EFT, electric funds transfer system. Okay, so, so does that include, like, ACH, too? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Sally was doing the examination or the audit in order to assist Michael Howell with that transition process. She was also trying to ascertain whether or not the Dilworth Insurance Agency was up and running with the new technology. So, like, she was trying to help him, um, you know, because it, it, is, it is hard when you're switching over, like, your whole business yeah. like that. So... Also, there's less, less uh, potential for fraud when you're, you're not getting checks. It's like they're paying, you know, people are paying ACH. It's hard to divert that versus yeah. a check. What does ACH stand for again? 
Automatic. I have no idea. I know, and I'm the Automatic. only one brought it up. Clearing, no. Publisher's Clearinghouse. Hmm. Publisher's Clearinghouse. <laughs> we use it at work with like our invoices and stuff. Like I know what it is. I don't know what it stands for. Automated Clearinghouse. Oh, okay. Yeah. I said Publisher's Clearinghouse. Yeah. So while performing her examination, Sally began looking through Michael's books and accounts and was requesting to see supporting documentation for various payments or deposits. Basically, she was asking Michael questions that he did not have answers for. When she would ask for the supporting documents, Michael told Sally that those documents were at another site, which was suspicious to Sally because Dilworth Insurance Agency didn't operate out of any other building, according to Sally's knowledge. But Michael had an answer for that. According to Michael Howell, the documentation she was requesting was being kept off-site because he had issues in the past with break-ins at the office, so he moved the records so he wouldn't lose them in the event of another break-in in the future. Yeah, because that's what burglars want. Like, let me just tell y'all, as an auditor, and a good one, if I do say so myself, that like that is the biggest load of bullshit I've she ever She probably knew heard. that, too, though. Yeah, oh, yeah. And that's the biggest red flag. Like, and as an auditor, most states have laws that a client is required to produce any records that you ask for during the course of completing your audit. There are especially strict laws relating to making documents available to auditors when they're employed by the state, which Sally was. For example, I worked for the Louisiana Legislative Auditor right out of college, and I stayed there for like four, uh, not four, what? Uh, seven years, almost eight years. Um, and I became very familiar with Louisiana Revised Statute 24-513, which states that, quote, the legislative auditor shall have access to and be permitted to examine all papers, books, accounts, records, files, instruments, documents, films, tapes, and any other form of recordation of all oddities, including but not limited to computers and recording devices and all software and hardware which hold data, as part of the technical uh, processes leading up to the retention of data or as part of the security system, end quote. Which, so, if you run a business, you should be very familiar with record retention laws. Right, exactly. Yeah, and, like, basically, as the auditor, and like, as a uh, Louisiana legislative auditor, if I ask you for something and it is related to my audit, you have to give it to me. It does not matter. And I'll, I tried to look at North Carolina's laws, like, under the insurance, but... Is there a time, like, a time frame that they have to produce those records? Um, I don't know if there... I don't know. I don't think the law lays out a time frame, but I do know that my old manager, they had to go to court because the client was, like, the agency would not give her documents, and they, they, uh, they... We're like, no, this law states that you have to give them the documents. Yeah. But I don't think there's a time frame. Well, of course there's going to be laws to back that shit up. What's the point of having a fucking... You have to have powers. Right. right. I mean, yeah. what's the point of the fucking audit at that exactly. point? Exactly. Um, there were a few times when I had to remind some of the agencies that I audited of that law because I was getting pushback when I asked for certain things. Um, I'm of the firm belief that if anyone doesn't want to give you documentation that you requested during the course of an audit... Something ain't fucking right. Right. 
That's suspicious. Right. Like, the bottom line here is Sally asked for those documents, and whether Michael Howard liked it or not, there was likely a law requiring him to hand those over. So, if he was doing, really doing something shady, spoiler alert, he absolutely fucking was, he probably knew he was in deep shit when she started questioning him about those records. Because, I mean, when you perpetrate a fraud, you know. You know what you're doing. You know which records are going to get you caught. Right. So... While reading through Sally's notes, they found an email Sally had sent to her supervisor regarding 16 months of bank records that were missing. She, 16 months. Mm-hmm. Jesus. She informed her supervisor that it appeared Michael Howell was floating money, which basically means like when you receive a payment for, you use it for personal reasons instead of forwarding it to the insurance company, and then you wait for the next payment to come in before actually paying that bill. So, like, a Ponzi scheme, like we talked about in the Ben Rennick Snake Mm -hmm. King episode. Like, robbing Peter to pay Paul kind of situation. Yeah. Consumers were sending insurance premium payments to Michael Howell at Dilworth Insurance Agency that were never making it to their final destination, the actual insurance company. So... Was this health insurance, car insurance, home insurance? I think it was car insurance. Okay. But from what I understood, Dilworth Insurance Agency was, like, one of those agencies that, like, will get you quotes from various insurance companies, like State Farm Progressive, GEICO. Like an agent, but not for... Not for a specific company. Yes. Like, they can get quotes from multiple different companies, and then when you choose one, you make your payments to Dilworth, and then he is supposed to send it off to GEICO. To make sure you're fucking covered. Right. Well, that's what he was supposed to do. Detectives were now suspicious of Michael Howell because they found that the la- the very last email Sally ever sent to her supervisor said, quote, he, Howell, gave me 16 months of bank statements today and there were issues in each month. No negative balances, but he is floating money, end quote. So, like, she could tell. Yeah. So, um... Detectives give good old Michael Howell another visit. At first, Howell gave detectives consent to search his office. However, he quickly withdrew that consent following detectives finding a reddish-brown stain on the carpet, which tested positive for blood. <gasps> yeah, they found what, what was blood, and he was like, nope, I'm um, withdrawing my consent. Like, you need a warrant now. Yeah. Which they'll get. They'll get. Oh, no. So, yeah. So, upon being told that detectives would be removing sections of the carpet... He withdrew his consent, so detectives stopped searching. They secured the business and his car mm-hmm. while waiting to obtain a warrant. Yeah, they'll sit on it until oh, the judge yeah. signs oh, it. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, I mean, with that, you found blood? Mm-hmm. They're going to get that warrant lickety-split. They're going to call a judge. Oh, yeah, for sure. I don't care what you're doing. You better sign <laughs> sign this warrant. No, they'll give... Like, they don't actually have to submit a, writ- a written warrant. The judge will give it to you over, over the, the like phone. Like, verbally? If yeah. you find... Oh, yes. if you find that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, like, gotcha. like, so detectives would call in uh-huh. to 911 because our lines were recorded. Oh. And then they would call, like, three-way like three, three the judge. Yeah. And, like, I'd mute myself uh-huh. because if I put it on hold, then it doesn't record. Right. So I have to mute myself. Uh-huh. And then the two of them are talking, and then they basically are giving a verbal yeah. version of what would be a written... Well, do they do a written one after? Yeah, they yeah, will. Like, just, formally. Yeah. But, but just because, like, you need to get in there now. Correct. And yeah. they'll say, um, Interesting. at such and such hours, we, you know, we conducted blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. You know, um, requesting blah, 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 blah. And we then, found reddish brown staining. And that if there's any blood, questions, yeah. the judge will ask them. And then they'll say, the judge will say, yeah, at, you yeah. know, 1823 hours, I'm, you know, permission mm-hmm. signing, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That's cool. I love your, your <laughs> knowledge. 
It makes me makes yeah. my little heart happy. <laughs> well, a lot of people don't know that either. Right. I didn't that's awesome. That's cool to know. Yeah. Good to know. But um like that's for those we got get gotta get and go. Yeah. So how and especially in this situation because she's missing mm-hmm. and they found blood. Mm-hmm. So Howell made several phone calls and then he just walked away from the business. Just took off one foot down the street. Like cool. Normal behavior. Like he just starts walking. He yeah. Just, because he can't take his car. No, like, bye. Okay. But I, I don't know that I would have let it, as a police officer, I don't know that I would have let him. But he wasn't under arrest. So well, I guess yeah, they, they can't, I mean, they, they could have detained him. him if they would have, you they know. They could have, oh, they would have had to arrest him? Well, no, they would have had to Mirandize him. Oh, uh, gotcha. Which doesn't necessarily mean you're being arrested. Yeah. Most of the time it does. Yeah. But they were probably waiting to get, yeah. you know. So. Upon receiving the warrant, detectives resumed the search and moved the desk and pulled the carpet back to look for blood seeping through the carpet. They did find blood residue on the carpet padding as well as the floor. Underneath the padding. Yes. So, it was a lot for it to seep through that That, much. Yeah, because that padding's a little thick. It was thick, yeah. And then it was like a stain on the cement. Like the floor under it. In all, detectives found traces of blood on the computer desk, the wall, the carpet, and a computer cord. It was like a white computer cord, so you could see it, like, like yeah. on the computer. So, question: like cast off Was on, he the only one who worked at this office? I Did think he have so. a secretary or I don't, other I don't know. Okay, I don't think so. But a lot of times, you can run a business like that on your own. No, yeah, for sure. So I don't think he had anybody else there. Um, and everything that I watched and read. They never mentioned anybody no else. No witnesses. Or- yeah, no, it was just him. Oh, bitch, wait till you look up what he looks like. All right, I'll wait. I'm going to show you in a minute. Where's my phone? I lost the bitch. Bitch. <laughs> where's his neck? I mean, where's it? <laughs> he has no neck. He looks like a thumb. Yeah, he does. The guy the guy who they got to, like, portray him in the... um. The, the reenactment or whatever, because like, it was like a dramatic reenactment. I was like, that dude is so much better looking than this clown. Mm-hmm. Like, ugh. Anyway. Oh, this is Sally. She, she has looks- like a bunch of pictures with like, like a cat and like, oh, it made me feel like I was so sad. So it's fairly obvious that like, some type of assault took place because there's blood in several space plot. Yeah, that. Several <laughs> places. Sp- spaces. I went to say places and then like spots. spots yeah. And in places. Places. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Detectives also searched Michael Howell's SUV and what do you know? They found blood stains in the cargo, the rear cargo area of the SUV and on the seat belt on the rear passenger side. That's so, how he transported her. Yes. So, but they still haven't found her body yet. Correct. So, during the search of his office, a vehicle pulls up, and the woman inside requests to speak to officers. And she's kind of hysterical. This was Michael Howell's wife. I was about to ask if he was married. Yep. Yeah, married with kids. So, who married that ugly fucker? I don't know, but... She told detectives that she spoke to her husband on the phone when he was heading home Oh, heading from home, like, to the business that morning, like, to let them search. Like, when he was letting them in before he withdrew his consent. And according to Michael Howell's wife, he told her that he became enraged with Sally during her audit because she was questioning him about how he ran his business. So he hit her over the head with a computer stand. Like, a metal computer stand. I can't even picture that. 
Yeah, I don't know if it's like the bottom part, like of like I think it's maybe the piece like like the little piece that looks like a T that holds the computer up. You know what I'm talking? Like a monitor stand. Yeah, maybe. maybe. But Michael Howell told his wife he had made a mistake. You think? He was cracking. Like you made several mistakes. You fucking fuck nut. Michael Howell had basically confessed to murder via his wife. After this, Michael Howell was arrested and charged with the first... I think they charged him with murder? Oh, yeah. They did. They charged him with first-degree murder when they arrested him. Because, like, there was enough blood that they knew there was, it was likely that she wasn't alive. Mm-hmm. You know? Did you find anything on the computer stand? Mm-mm. He hit her with a computer stand. I don't... That's what, that's what they've always referred to it as. The fuck is a computer stand? I don't know. I'm... What I pictured was, like, the little piece that looks like a T that holds, like, a monitor. Like that. Yeah. So, um, Michael immediately asked for an attorney, but it didn't matter because the detectives had enough on him. And like I said, he was charged with first-degree murder, despite detectives not having a body. So, detectives were like, you know what? Let's make a deal with him. Mm -hmm. And they were like... We will take the death penalty off the table if you bring us to her body. Mm -hmm. So he decided to accept the deal and he led detectives to a wooded area and about 75 feet off the road. So in South Carolina. So he crossed state lines with her. Yeah. And her body was about 75 feet off of the road. She was lying face up and she was decomposed so much that she could not be positively identified on the scene. Besides the clothing that she was wearing that they knew was, like, what she was wearing when she was last seen. So, like, that fucker, did, he didn't even bother to try to bury her? Yeah. What the fuck? He literally dumped her like a piece of trash and just left. Not that, like, I wanted him to bury her because he might have gotten away with it. But you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. what the fuck? So, following the discovery, Sally's body was transported to the medical examiner's office. The Emmy found that her cause of death was blunt force trauma, which is consistent with his story. Like I said, well, I kind of gave you a little bit of it, but we'll talk more about like what he admitted to because he eventually did crack, you know, fully. So Sally Rohrbach's body was located on May 20th, 2008. So that was like, I think six days after she was officially missing, but like four days after she was reported missing do we know what day she truly got murdered i think on the 14th okay that was because that was the last day anybody had seen her when she was at his office Mm -hmm. so she her body was found in a wooded area in fort mill south carolina and it was discovered around 2 30 p.m on vista road which is a rural area of northern york county south carolina following the discovery of her body her employer the north carolina department of insurance issued a statement quote The news this evening that Sally's body was found brings conflicting emotions to those of us at the Department of Insurance. We are devastated that all hope is lost, but we also find a sense of closure in knowing that we can lay to rest our dear friend and colleague with the dignity and respect she deserves. Not knowing where to find her was torturous, so at least in that regard, there is some relief. We pray for peace for Sally's family and want them to know that we grieve with them, end quote. That was like a really Mm well-written statement, I felt like. Um, but ultimately what happened was that Michael Howell lost his shit because Sally found his fraud. So he attacked her, hitting her over the head with a computer stand. 
He then put her body in plastic bags, loaded it into the back of his SUV, and went and dumped her body. Actually, I'm about to look and see how far he drove with her. Because I'm kind of curious. So, I did figure out how far Charlotte is from Fort Mill where she in South Carolina. It's like, it's only like 20 miles. Like a 25 minute So, from minute his insurance agency to where her body was dumped? Yeah. Not exactly. I mean, yeah, approximately. So, I mean, even though it was in, because it was in another state. Because he, they were in North Carolina right. and her body was found in South Carolina. Does that make it a federal crime? I don't know. I think so, because if you cross, a lot of times when you cross state lines. I know, like, with child custody. If you cross state lines, you fucked all the way up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, um, yeah, because I was just wondering, like, how far did he drive with her body in his car? Because that's just risky. Disgusting. Yeah. Disgusting. That's disgusting. All right. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so after he dumped her body, he returned to his office where he attempted to clean up the area and he rearranged furniture to try to cover up like any signs that a struggle and a murder had taken place. Because when they found that blood stain, they were like, you could tell it had been cleaned up, but it's hard to get blood out completely. Right. So, and even if you get it out, if they test swab it, it's going to come up. Right. Or luminol, it lights up like a fucking Christmas tree. Mm-hmm. So... Between March of 2004 and May of 2008, so he was doing this for four years, he embezzled more than $150,000 via documented and undocumented insurance premiums, which left unsuspecting customers driving around <gasps> uninsured. So it and was they vehicle. thought they were insured. Yeah. So um, he first appeared in court on Tuesday, May 20th. 2008, wait, that don't sound right. That don't sound right. That was the search warrant. Because I think, because I think they found her body on May 20th. Hold up, Swole. That's the day he was arrested. Yeah, but, but it's not a Tuesday. I don't think. Hold up. Let me pull out the handy dandy calendar app on my phone. Go all the way back to 2008. Here we go. Oh, just, you know. Oh, no. May 20th. Oh, no. Sorry. Her body was found May 18th, which was a Sunday. Okay. So, yeah. So, that's right. Okay. I was just making sure I wasn't lying to y'all. So, he first appeared in court on Tuesday, May 20th, 2008, where he requested that the judge provide him a public defender. The judge was he like, a broke bitch? The judge said, no, you can pay for your own defense. And no, he what? denied it. Yes. Is that illegal? Yeah, if if the judge thinks that you can pay your your own way, yes, they don't have to provide you. If they, you have if, a right to counsel, but not public, counsel. not public defender, right? Because if you if the judge looks at your financials and is like, um, you can afford your own fucking defense, you're not getting a public defender. Well, he it wasn't his money, right? So, on Friday, May 29th, two thousand and nine. Michael Howell stood silent in court as he entered a plea of guilty for the second-degree murder of Sally Rohrbach, and he was subsequently sentenced to 27 to 35 years in prison. So in that plea deal, they took um, uh, death off the table and, and they dropped it, it down to, to second-degree, second. yeah. So Sally's husband told WBTV, quote, There is no justice for the families of the murdered victims There's no getting because there's no getting that person back ever, end quote. And I thought... That was an interesting quote because it's like, that's really true, like, right. right? That's like, that's like suing them civilly and getting financial. Right. Because like, isn't. you know, true justice 
will be that person coming back, but that's not possible mm-hmm. when somebody's murdered. So I guess it's more of like accountability than justice. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like a, a lot of people are like justice hasn't been served, but has it really? Because like you're still, I mean, I don't know. I guess people can get closure knowing that the person who hurt your loved one is in jail where they belong, but it's more like accountability. So that he didn't get life either. No. Yeah. Wow. So, I don't know. I just thought it was, like, a different quote than, like, what you typically hear. Because right. you always hear, like, oh, justice has been served. But this dude was like, no, like, there is no justice. Like, because she's not here. And I was like, damn, you know? Right. So, Department of Insurance spokesperson Chrissy Pearson was quoted saying, quote, Sally gave no indication she was concerned about this case. It was a routine case. She was looking at some finances, looking at the books, end quote. And then she continued, quote, it's the last thing we expected. We just don't expect our people in the field to be put in this kind of danger, end quote. So in early February 2009, Michael Howell was additionally charged with 25 counts of embezzlement. During their investigation, Assistant DA Beth Green told the judge they discovered that Howell had embezzled more than $150,000 from his clients, putting hundreds of policyholders at risk. According to the Winston-Salem Journal, Green said, quote, he was issuing fraudulent policies and embezzling that money, end quote. Additionally, she explained that Howell's customers he was swindling had no idea that they were just rolling around uninsured. Like, in most states, that's a law. You have to have insurance. You have to have liability. Yeah. Not to mention, when you get pulled over, if you don't have proof of insurance on you, Mm -hmm. which I don't have a printed, I'm on the digital Yeah. But when they run you in NCIC, it's linked to the Office of Motor Vehicles, and they can see if your policy is right. active, active or not. not. Mm-hmm. Which, if it's if it lapses, then there's fucking penalties mm-hmm. and fees and all that, and it's like well, I guess there's none a flag of, on your goddamn license. Yeah. It's yeah, I guess none of those people had gotten pulled over, so they had no idea. Yeah, for four years because they're sending their money in. Yeah, so. In late May 2009, Howell pleaded guilty to all 25 counts of embezzlement, and he got a 12-and-a-half-year prison sentence, which I'm assuming is going to run at the same time, like, concurrently. Mm-hmm. Um, so, while researching this case, I came across an article by a CPA and a former prosecutor about lessons for auditors and fraud examiners. The main author's name seemed super familiar to me, and then it dawned on me. Frank Perry, the main author, spoke... At a forensic accounting and fraud conference I attended for work in July. No way. Yeah. So, Frank Perry is actually the person who coined the term red-collar criminal in 2009. Um, So, a red-collar criminal is just a subgroup of white-collar criminals, which is like fraudsters and stuff, Mm -hmm. who are violent um, with their motive being to prevent the detection and disclosure of their fraud schemes through violence. So, a red-collar criminal is basically just like a white-collar criminal, like, that commits fraud. Mm -hmm. But when they're threatened that they're going to be exposed, they turn violent. Mm -hmm. So I thought, I was like, what are the chances that this case Mm -hmm. that I'm doing, he just came and spoke to us? Yeah. He was so interesting. But, of course, I'm a nerd, so. (laughs) Um, So when I saw he wrote an article about the case, like, I was really excited. He authored the article with Richard G. Brody, and it was titled The Sally Robach Story, Lessons for Auditors and Fraud Examiners. And it was in the January 2011 edition of the Journal of Financial Crime. So being the nerd and CPA that I am, I wanted to include a few little tidbits from the article because A, they were interesting. B, they're related to the case. And lastly, 
see. I wanted to give a few tips and like red flags to look out for if you're an auditor, a fraud examiner, like and going to see a client. Because there might be, you know, some CPAs, mm-hmm. auditors that listen. Well, yeah, or if they search fraud in the podcast yeah. app, this will come up. Right. So, in my introduction, I mentioned that Sally probably went into the Dilworth Insurance Agency to perform her investigation, assuming it would be like the thousands of other ones she had performed, but she didn't realize it would be her last. Frank Perry discussed this comfortability in his article, and he said, quote, It is the lowering of one's guard brought about by the routine nature of one's assignment that facilitates ignoring workplace violence risk factors or worse yet, not even being aware of what they may consist of relative to their duties that increases the probability that one can be a victim of violence from a white-collar criminal, end quote. So, you you know, he was like, Sally thought, you know, oh, this is just like a regular case, so she probably missed a lot of the red flags, you know? Because you think... Well, yeah. I've done this so many times, you know? Well, it's, I guess it, it could, it kind of makes me think that it's equivalent to like a traffic stop or, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, They say domestic cases and, or domestic calls and traffic stops are the most unpredictable mm-hmm. situations police officers can be in. Right. So, mm-hmm. you don't know what, you don't know what they have in the car. You don't know. Yeah. Well, or if they have a warrant and they're going to try to run or well, hurt yeah. you uh, or. Like, uh, senior trooper, senior trooper Vincent, the one that got killed in like Calcasieu, mm-hmm. like five years, six years ago. Um, you know, rude. They say routine traffic stop, but there's nothing routine about it. No. Um, yeah, that's know. probably the most dangerous. It is because yeah. I mean, with domestic, you know that it's going to be a hostile environment and heated. Um, but and you, you just. You have to, you can, you know to go in with extreme caution, but it can go zero to a hundred very quickly. But with a traffic stop, you don't automatically expect them to be hostile. No. Um, but you don't know what's in the car. It's, Mm -hmm. it's probably the most scary situation because you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. So Perry discussed the myth that white collar criminals are just quote, good fuck. (laughs) I just like slammed into my mic. Perry discussed the myth that white-collar criminals are just, quote, good people who committed a, quote, bad act. However, he references a 2007 study by M. Dami, where um, Dami interviewed incarcerated white-collar criminals that found, quote, these offenders perceived their own behavior as non-criminal, denied that there were any victims because their offense was non-violent, and that they were no danger to society, end quote. So... Funny you say that. When um, people are uh, arrested for, like, drug possession, mm-hmm. um, in our system that we had, you had to list a victim. Mm-hmm. Well, if it's just, like, possession, there's no physical, personal victim. But yeah. they list the victim as society. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, Dami also found that white-collar criminals, quote, believe that fraud is both acceptable to overcome financial difficulties or to make a profit for the business, end quote. So, they basically think, like, I'm entitled to do this. Well, be, they think you know? because, I mean, financial crimes, like, they think that because there's no one person getting hurt, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, these people were driving around with no fucking insurance, right? So there's that. Yeah. So, according to a study by Dr. Robert Hare, white-collar, crim- quote, white-collar criminals often share the same exploitative, remorseless, psychopathic traits as other criminals. <laughs> what distinguish these criminals are the victims they preyed upon, end quote. The point being... Although white-collar criminals are often seen by society as, like, less problematic than murderers, that's not true. Like, both, they often share the same traits. Yeah, and most of the time it is financial crimes that are, they 
they don't really take accountability or right. ownership for. Uh-huh. They think that they, nothing was wrong with what they did. Exactly. And then, you know, who's? it's like a slippery slope with that because it's like, you know, there's no telling if a white-collar criminal put in the right situation, mm-hmm. they they could resort to violence, mm-hmm. you know, and kill somebody. Um, Perry further backs up this idea in his article saying, quote, the fact that criminals who commit fraud may share the same criminal deviant thinking as non-white-collar criminals should counter the belief that somehow they would not resort to violence as a solution to satisfy their motives, end quote. Perry continues that when a threat of fraud detection is present, White-collar criminals will result to brutal acts of violence in order to silence the people who found them out in order to prevent being exposed. Mm -hmm. Which is so stupid. Like panic mode, yep. You're going to go to jail longer for murder Mm -hmm. than you would for fraud. But they don't think that in the moment because they think they can get away with it. Right. According to Frank Perry, the top warning signs are red flags that should be considered are physical signs, clenched fish, bitch, clenched... Mm -hmm. Clenched jaw or fist, I but I typed fish. Whoops. Um, a change in voice, pacing, a sense of desperation, scowling, violating personal space, destroying property, exaggerated or violent gestures, loud talking, glaring or avoiding eye contact, trembling or shaking, abusive language, and rapid breathing, shoving, pushing, and kicking. Sounds a lot like my anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, God damn. This net, wait, I don't know, yeah. Wait till I get to negative personality traits. Mm, love that. And so the second one is intimidating behaviors, argumentative, displays unwanted, unwarranted anger, uncooperative, impulsive, easily frustrated, challenges authority figures, embarrassing statements, humiliation, and excessive phone calls. Why is he describing me? <laughs> um, the third one is negative personality traits, blames others for his or her problems, displays a sense of entitlement, exploitative, egocentric grandiosity difficulty taking criticism and feels victimized (laughs) i was like that is a lot of people that i know Mm -hmm. um verbal behaviors one sign is often from a person making verbal threats such as what comes around goes around um i don't get mad i get even um like those are serious signs and we tend to ignore them in society because they're perceived as jokes or cliches but you know they're, I mean, they're not. Other verbal signs involve swearing, insults, or condescending language. Whoops. Yeah. Um, Perry ends the article by answering the question, what realistic precautions can be taken to reduce vulnerability? And honestly, I'll probably keep some of these in, in mind, like if I'm ever like an external auditor again. So interview in public or at your own office, like if feasible. So you're not going into like their territory, you know? Um, consider the time of day when interviewing, such as late at night, like avoid going late at night. Keep that motherfucking thing on you. Right. Um, like make sure you let others know where you're going, like where you're going to be. That's why people got my location. <laughs> um, approach investigations as a team when possible. Encourage employers, employees to share information about suspicious behaviors. Review an individual's criminal history if possible. Um, consider an exit strategy if you're in somebody else's office or home. You know, like, how do I get out of here if I need to? Consider contacting the authorities if you believe you're in danger and disengage in arguments that appear to be escalating in tone. So, like, if somebody is just, like, upping it and going, like, like, starts yelling at you and getting louder and louder, you need to, like... Oh, they don't want that game with me. Oh, I, I got a story about that. So, 
According to Frank Perry, the number of white-collar criminals who resort to violence is low when compared to the overall group of individuals who commit fraud. But he goes on to explain that, quote, having an understanding that violent crimes are committed by white-collar criminals as a solution to a perceived problem is critical. Further, understanding that such violence is often directed towards those in a position to expose the white-collar criminal is also important, end quote. He actually wrote a book. Um, I think it's called With Cold e- With Cold Ease, like E-A-S-E. Do you bring this up in here that time that one lady threw that shit at you? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's why I can't be pregnant ever, because I'd be, if oh, I was yeah. in that situation, I'd have crossed that fucking table. Oh, that, it's in here. So, I just want to kind of talk about some takeaways. Um, this case is terrifying. Like, you expect that you might die, like, in the line of duty, like, as, like, a police officer, like, a, a public servant, yeah. Like, a soldier. But, like, I don't think anyone ever expects that they may be murdered for doing their job when they're a fucking auditor. Like, that is the most boring fucking job. Like, <laughs> says I, the auditor. <laughs> I'm boring as fuck. Like,. Like, so this case struck really close to home for me because I'm an auditor and have been for almost a decade. Um, like, I've definitely be, been on the receiving end of some angry clients or auditees, auditees before, and it's always kind of scary. Um, I don't know if you know about this one, but I've been yelled at by the director of an agency I was auditing before. And this is not when I was pregnant. This is a different agency. Um, what that woman name was? Which one? This one? This was an old man. Oh. And he's still there. I don't know how he's still there because he was like 90 when I was there like six years ago. But he's still the director. He yelled at us because we were going to miss a deadline like to issue the report that we had previously agreed to. But the only reason we were going to miss that deadline is because my boss's house flooded during the great flood of 2016 that we had here in Louisiana. And like she, her house flooded during our audit and she had to be rescued from her house by boat. So, like, you know, obviously we're behind and we were off for a whole week because of the flood. So, like, she was and then she was out of work for a bit. They had no flood insurance. So, like, she's having to deal with that shit. This old man did not give a fuck. And he sat in our office and yelled at us that we were going to miss our deadline. uh, mm -mm. See, I match energy me. Yeah. Wait, so we yelling today. Not just you, we. Wait, so my boss at the time, Elizabeth, is just like sitting there so fucking calm and just like politely oops fuck i just hit my mic she just like politely explained the situation and meanwhile i'm sitting across the room like shitting my pants like trying not to cry because like what the fuck so here's the one you're talking about another time when i was running an audit i requested payroll records from the audit coordinator that i was working with so i gave her the list of payroll transactions that i needed the support for And so this agency still had paper, like payroll records. So we had a concern that she's going to go back and doctor payroll records. Like if she didn't sign off on them, that she was going to go sign off on them. And we wouldn't know because they're paper. You can can backdate stuff. Yeah. So um, I didn't want to give her too much time. So I told her my staff, who was brand new, by the way, would be there. Me and my staff would be there at 9 a.m. on a Monday to look at their records. Well, apparently over that weekend, her HR director just up and quit. Because she's a fucking bitch. The the director lady. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was dealing with like the HR director quitting when we got there. And I asked for the records. She's like, oh, well, they're not ready yet. And I was like, ma'am, I'm going to have to pick a different sample because like you had too much time 
to get that information to me. Like, there's a concern that you would have fixed them. Right. Quote, unquote, fixed them. I mean, she already had all weekend. Right. Which she probably did fix them. This woman, like, scoffed at me. And then she walked out of the conference room we were working in. She returned a few minutes later and literally threw the folders of records across the, like, conference room table. Like, slid them to me. Threw them at me. I'm pregnant at the fucking time with Olivia, with my baby. My youngest. Um, And she's like, well, I was just trying to help you. So you didn't have to dig through everything. But here, I didn't think you were going to be this way. And then she slammed the door and walked out. Like, I was pregnant and I had records thrown at me. Like, that was the scariest, like, altercation I have ever gotten into in my professional career. And honestly, not long after this happened, and everybody knew about it, is when I was interviewing for a promotion. And we interviewed with, like, the director of financial at my co- my company and, like, all the assistant directors. The director at the time, Ernie, he was like, all right, we're going to ask the Ariel question. This is in my interview. He's like, we're going to ask the Ariel question now. Um, how do you deal with difficult oddities? Because, <laughs> like, they knew that I had dealt yeah. with this bitch. So, like, I emailed my manager, and I was like, look, like, this is what happened. She's like, do you need me to, like, come out there? I was like, no, like, I'm going to handle it. But the audit coordinator eventually, she did come and apologize to me. She did? Yes. She will wanna. Yeah, right. She came and apologized to me, and I was like, you know, I mean, I was still shaken up. And not to mention my poor staff. He was brand new. And that was his first interaction with an agency ever. And, like, talk about trial by fire. Mm-hmm. Poor thing. Baptism by fire. Yeah. And I remember telling the story to, like, a different manager who I was helping with, like, another audit. But he wasn't the manager over that audit. And he was so fucking pissed. Teddy. His name was Teddy. He was so sweet. I love him. He was like, absolutely not, Ariel. If she does that shit again, you walk out and we will all back you up. He's like, you don't accept that kind of disrespect. <laughs> like, no, we match it. <laughs> right. And like, I loved him for that. You know, he was pissed. Like, he was as mad as, I guess, because so I was pregnant. So did she give like, you the sample that you were requesting or did she give you a new one? No, she gave me the one I had So requested. it was, she had it. Oh, we, re- we wrote that bitch up. We wrote a finding. It was fine. There was a. Yeah, there was a finding. Yeah. She, they weren't, uh, and this is public record, they weren't, um, they weren't crediting people with their comp time, like their overtime. Because like, it, when you work for the state, you get, you can either get paid overtime, which is rare, or you can get comp time, which is like extra leave. Mm-hmm. They were not paying them um, timely, and it was still like all paper records, so it took forever, and they just like were not doing it. It ended up being like a thousand hours that they owed their their employees wow yeah see i keep track of my shit oh yeah oh no they were and they were the employees were complaining Filing complaining things, complaining yeah. but which i mean yeah so they finally got all their hours i bet but, the fuck they did um but yeah like that shit was scary like i can happily say though like nothing even remotely close to that has ever happened again but if it does like now know what i know now i should have walked out like i should have walked out after that and i didn't but but I'm like, I didn't know if you I was going to get in trouble. She threw them at you, but you needed the records, right? Right. But like, again, like Teddy said, he was like, no, you don't accept that. Like, you walk out. He's like, I don't care. So. Did you have to stay there when you were like, what, like when it happened, you stayed there? That day, yeah. The whole day. Mm-hmm. Because you had to work on site. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You got me fucked all the way up, bitch. Yeah. I been yeah, that's why Teddy gone. was like, uh, no. Like, no. Next time you. I'd have been gone, gone. Yeah. 
So, according to the episode that I watched, um, one of Sally's coworkers, Kathy O'Connor, the one I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. who says she talked to her like every day, she said, quote, it's been 11 years now since Sally's death, and there's not a day that goes by that I don't think of her, and I think she's looking down on us right now, and I think she's happy. That's what I wish for her. I hope she's found happiness, end quote. Um, a plaque in Sally's honor now hangs in the North Carolina Department of Insurance, a solemn reminder of Sally's governmental service and ultimate sacrifice really it's so weird to hear in this yeah environment like a yeah like an auditor like you mm-hmm. but it's apparently more common than you think there's like a uh the one that i'm probably going to cover next in this category um i can't remember the name but it was basically somebody tried to take a hit out or took a hit out on an irs agent yeah because that's a smart an IRS fucking auditor. Idea. yeah I'm, I'm pretty sure she was killed i think but um, I think what bothers me so much is that this case was so fucking senseless. Like, obviously, all cases we cover are senseless. But the thing like, is, if you were just going to sing like a fucking canary. Right. Like, you didn't even put up a, f- you know. Yeah, like, like, and, like, this motherfucker killed Sally just because she found out he was stealing. And I can guarantee you he did it because he didn't want to go to prison. Well, like, good job, you fucking idiot. Because I can promise you he got more time for fucking murder. Then he would have gotten for embezzlement. Right. Like, are you that fucking stupid? Well, yeah, he got, what, 12 and a half years for embezzlement? 27 to 35 for murder? Right. Hello. Like, you fucking idiot. Ignorant. Like, just don't fucking steal? Like, I don't right. know. Ugh. But, yeah, that was that was uh, an interesting, like, departure from what we kind of, well, I mean, it's still murder, but, you know, I'll, the, the motive was different. Right. So, we're just going to have, like, so many categories at this point. Who gives a fuck? Well, that's the case of the fraudulent case that ended in the murder of Sally Rohrbach. Thanks for listening. If you like today's episode, rate and review us. Get um, with it. Yeah, we'll read the nice ones. If you leave us some rude ones, fuck we'll, you. We'll make fun of you. It's fine. Uh, five stars only. <laughs> come correct or don't come at all. Exactly. Bye. Bye.